What is it uh, that makes a wedding a wedding? I've had the privilege of uh, performing quite a few weddings in my ministry, um, getting to be a part of um, the premarital counseling, talking through whether or not this couple's ready to get married, to talking through the plans for the actual ceremony. I've had to help people think through their plans, and I've had to actually be the wedding planner. I much prefer uh, being the wedding planner than working with some wedding planners. Um, <laughs> I was free. Thanks for coming today. Um, when you think about what makes a wedding a wedding in our culture, it, there's a lot of things that go into it. It's a lot of, lot of stuff that comes into our minds, right? Expensive clothing, music, ring bearers, flowers, guest books, ushers, and the list goes on and on. Hours upon hours of planning this ceremony. And in my experience in performing weddings, one of the things that gets the least amount of attention when it comes to the plans are the vows. See, many couples that I've worked with, they've just said, hey, why don't you just send us some vows and we'll just kind of do that, but we've got a wedding to plan. I think to myself, you're missing the most important part. You see, a marriage isn't built on feelings. They come and go. It doesn't start with physical intimacy and meeting emotional needs. And in a lot of countries around our world, marriage doesn't even start with love. See, two people, they come together in a church, a chapel, a backyard, uh, before each other, before witnesses. This man and this woman getting married before God himself. And they say, I give you my word. I'm making you a promise. That's what marriage is built on. It's a covenant. But I think that's lost in our world today. Not only in marriage, but in business. Giving your word doesn't mean what it used to mean. And in little things and big things alike, we, we say we're going to do something, and it kind of has become this optional thing, keeping your word. Not only that, but maybe you're like me, but I've found myself as I've grown older, it's not just hard to keep my own word, it's hard for me to believe that the person I'm talking to is going to keep their word. Do they have my best interest in mind? Do they have an ulterior motive? What's the catch? Where's the, uh, the, the trick here? What are you trying to really do here? Maybe you're wired like that too, but that's how I've come to listen to people. I remember a high school science teacher in ninth grade, so this is over 20 years ago, had uh, this motto that he would say all the time, I believe none of what I hear and only half of what I see. He would say it all the time, I believe none of what I hear and only half of what I see. I'm like, that's no way to live, and yet I haven't been able to get it out of my brain all these years later because the world around me doesn't seem to be giving me an ulterior mo- option. What's the alternative? What's, what, what is the alternative to simply taking and not believing anything that we hear and only half of what we see? You look at the divorce rate in our country, even among evangelicals, it's staggering. Around people that understand what we're doing when we make a commitment. Let alone young people that I talk to saying, hey, we don't need to get married. Marriage is just a piece of paper. Like, man, you're missing the big picture here. Or the amount of people that get caught in Ponzi schemes, destroying the lives of innocent people who said, I believe you have my best interest in mind. I'm going to invest my money with you only to be tricked and conned out of everything that they've worked so hard to accumulate because somebody was lying to them. Just this past week, 50 million people had their identities hacked by Facebook, a company who just a few months ago said they're going to put in all new policies and all new software to protect your identity and your privacy. 50 million people from this uh, social media empire, had their identities hacked. All of this, all around us, man, it sure makes it hard to believe somebody when they say they're going to do something by keeping their word. 
Maybe you've experienced this, right? How many of you need verification when someone says they're going to do something? You're like, promise? Anybody ever say that, promise? In our house, that's the, that's the line. You say promise. So like my wife and kids, for whatever reason, it's lost on me, think that I'm trying to trick them or prank them. Uh, I don't know where they get this idea. I'm a straight shooter. I've never tried to trick them or prank them. So whenever they want to know the truth, they always say, you promise? Like if I tell my kids, hey, this is what's going on, they're like, promise? Because they know if they say that phrase, do you promise, the joke is going to end there. Like I can't, can't keep pranking them after that. Like I'm not going to actually give my word. I'm just pretending to give my word, right? And I've heard one person say in their family that the line is not I promise, but Bugs Bunny. So if you're serious about something and you want someone to believe what you're going to say, you preface what you're going to say with Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny, and then you tell them what you're going to say and they're supposed to believe you. You're like, that's funny, but that's for them. That works for them. Talking on the phone with my brother and other people that are a little bit more in tune with culture and, and what's relevant right now, there's a phrase going around now that people use where they want you to believe what they're saying, so they'll say 100%. Like 100%, and then they'll say what they're going to say, 100%. And, and some people say it so many times, I'm like, that's like 700%. That's not 100%. And what, what about 80%? Am I supposed to believe part of this? Like, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying to me right now. But we are all wired that way, right? All these interactions we have, as funny as it is, it really reveals that inside each of us, there's a little bit of skepticism that's formed, and the culture begins to kind of feed the skepticism. We are skeptical of anyone who tells us pretty much anything, and my skepticism really puts me on guard against certain relationships and how close I want to get to somebody or how much I want to believe them, because over and over and over again in my life, I've been let down or proved wrong for trusting. So it's no wonder then, if that's how we interact with one another, that we're going to take that skepticism and impose it upon our relationship with God. Can God really be trusted? Like, am I really supposed to believe that he's going to do everything that he said he's going to do? Because if that's true, my life seems to have some chaos going on around me, and I'm not sure I can actually believe what God is saying. Doesn't look like he's doing what he said he's going to do. I'm not sure I'm seeing this from the right angle. And so our skepticism invades our relationship with the Lord. As we continue our series in Hebrews, we're going to finish chapter 6 today. We left off in in chapter 6, verse 12, and last week we talked about how the author is really encouraging us to get serious about Jesus, to mature. It's time to grow up. Stop eating a milk diet and start eating a meat diet. Start getting serious about Jesus and start getting serious about what sin can do to your life. Well, he's going to kind of continue in that theme of maturity, of what it means to grow and to become more and to take that next step, but he's going to tell us why we can trust God. Like, why is it that in the midst of your growing up, in the midst of taking things seriously, God can be someone that you can trust. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Here's what the author says. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their different disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. I really love that line. So, when God made a promise, there was no one higher than himself to promise by, so he promised by himself. And many of you have heard this phrase in our culture. Many of you maybe have this as a part of your dialogue, and in moments of weakness it might slip. I think it should be eliminated from our vocabulary, but maybe you've heard somebody say, well, I swear to God. I swear to God. As though that's going to influence whether or not someone believes you. We just kind of say these things. We don't realize what we're saying. Well, God kind of does that here. There's nothing higher by which I can actually swear. So he's like, I swear to God. Well, I swear to me, is what God is saying. I swear to me. 
And then he makes this promise because he's never going to break his promise. And he makes a promise to a guy named Abraham. And I don't want to make any assumptions here about your history interacting with the scriptures this morning. Abraham's a guy that lived many, many years ago. He's found in the book of Genesis. You can pick up his story in around chapter 12. And the story of Abraham picks up with God coming to him and telling him, I want you to go on this journey, and I want you to trust me, and I want to make you this promise. And I want you to live your life based on your faith in this promise. And the promise he makes him is, Abraham, through you and your wife Sarah, I'm going to make you the the father of many nations. You're going to be blessed, and your family will multiply, and you will have descendants upon descendants upon descendants. But when you're reading the story, you're like, wait a second, this dude's 75 years old. He's a little past his prime. How's this going to work? 75 years old, and Abraham says, I don't know how this is going to work, but I will trust you. And all the years later, the writer of Hebrews is using Abraham to illustrate how we should live our lives in trusting the promises of God. But here's the thing. He says that Abraham patiently waited on the Lord to fulfill his promise. So he believed it was going to happen, and he patiently waited. But it does not say that Abraham easily waited on the Lord. He didn't say that waiting on God to fulfill his promises was a cakewalk for Abraham. He just kind of strolled through life. Everything was easy for him. No, when you read his story, you realize this guy messed up once or twice. Uh, The longer he was waiting, the more difficult it became. And at one point in this walk with God, he and his wife begin to interpret, well, what did God really mean? Well, maybe he meant that you could, like, you're going to have babies. And so just here, sleep with Hagar and have a baby. And they have Ishmael. And God's like, that's not what I meant. We've got to clean this up now. And he begins to work through them again and remind them, this, I'm talking you, Sarah, you, Abraham, you're going to be. And then they begin to think, okay, God, how is this going to work out? How is this going to? And he trips and stumbles again. He, he comes upon a king who's interested in his wife. He says, not my wife, it's my sister. Please save me. Right? And he does that twice. And you're thinking, man, waiting on God doesn't look as easy as I thought it did, does it, Abraham? God entered into this covenant with him with an oath. He said, I'm giving you my word. I'm not going to break my word. I'm going to come through. And he reminds him over and over and over again. That promise is repeated throughout Abraham's life. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to fulfill what I said I was going to do. And it continues to remind him to stay faithful and to patiently wait. And then what happens is it takes 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled. 25 years of waiting. He's 100 years old, and he has this son, Isaac. But if you're like me, you're wondering, okay, hold on. Like, you have a son, but that's not, one son doesn't really seem like a multitude to me. But according to Genesis 17 and 18 and following in the life of Abraham, he fully believed that that Isaac was the miraculous fulfillment of this promise that God had made. And he believed those promises on faith. Here's, this is why it's important for you. He said, I believe that what he said is true. Even though I'm not going to see the complete fulfillment of this in my lifetime, all I need is Isaac. God has shown me that it's going to come through Isaac, and God is going to be faithful, even if I don't get to see it. Even though he didn't see it all come in his lifetime, he was anchored to this hope that God was fulfilling his promise. God had given him everything he needed to continue to trust that he was going to come through and follow, follow through on his promise. And so this fascinating thing that takes place in the verses here is it says that God gave him a promise. God entered into this oath, and he did so according to his own name. And he kind of calls all of his people to do the same, to be people of honesty and integrity. So here's a side note. Back in those days, an oath didn't require anything extra. Like when you gave your word, that was it, because you were resting your family's name and reputation and history on your fulfillment of what you said you were going to do. 
Okay? It didn't require a signature. Nowadays, it's like, I give you my word. That's cool. Let me draw up the contract and you can sign it. No, no, no. Like, I'm, I'm telling you I'm going to do it. Awesome. Let me draw up the contract, right? And I'm going to get your signature and then we can move forward because we don't have that. We don't have the power of someone's word, the power of their name meaning much. When I read through this, I thought, man, when I think about my kids, Caleb, Abby, Luke, and Noah, I want my kids, when they're, when, as they grow, to become people who, when they say they're going to do something, they do it. When they give you their word, they're going to follow through on it. I want them to understand that when they follow through on what they say they're going to do, it represents me and their mom. And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't come from a family that I necessarily feel strongly in representing. In fact, there's not a history of honesty, character, and integrity. But that can all change today. See, the history of integrity doesn't have to be one that you're looking back at. It can be one that you're looking forward to. And it can come from your kids and their kids and their kids. And you, begin, you can begin a generational passing on of integrity and character. Like when we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Why? Because we know the God who's never broken his promises. And we want everything in our life to revolve around him. He continues in verse 17. He says, so understanding how these oaths and promises worked, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So he says God really wanted his people to understand this, so he made a promise based on a few different things that are always going to be true. One, his purpose is in the world, and two, he's never going to lie, because if God lied, he'd cease to be God. He cannot be God and lie. And so he's always going to come through on what he says, and he always has a purpose in everything. Now here's how I want you to think about this. When you're living your life, because it says that's our hope. Our hope is built on these two unchanging things. God has a purpose, and God never lies. God is always going to come through. So no matter what you experience in your life, no matter what, you fail, you go through a difficult season, you're depressed, you're angry, life isn't good, you're walking through tragedy and pain and heartache, and it kind of just feels like all the way to the world is coming towards you. It says your hope, the way that you can be steadfast, that you can continue to walk through this and suffer through whatever it is you're walking through is built on two things. God has a plan and a purpose. No matter what's going on in your life, he's got a plan. He's got a purpose for what's going on. He's going to bring good about it. It kind of brings Romans 8 to life, doesn't it? That God works together for the good of all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He always has a purpose in everything that's going on. And then he's never going to lie. God has told us that if we are in Christ, we are conquerors, that we will win the day, that there will come a day where there'll be no more suffering, no more pain. He'll wipe every tear from your eye. Everything will be made right. He will make all things new. And he has never, ever, ever broken his word. And he never will. And so whatever we're going through, that's the perspective we have. And he says, that's the hope that you need to hold on to when you're living your life. And that kind of brings us to this climax, this, in my opinion, the heartbeat of our passage today, which is verse 19. He says this, because of all that, we have this sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. If you're someone who underlines or highlights, underline and highlight that. You have a sure, meaning it's not going to change. You can count on it. Steadfast, meaning it endures. Another way to say that word would be long-suffering. It continues to endure. Nothing's going to stop it. So it's, it's, you can, it's a foundational truth that you can bank your life on, this anchor for your soul. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Next week, we'll enter into talking about kind of Melchizedek, but the anchor is the heartbeat of this passage today. So let me ask you a question. What is it that an anchor is good for? 
Like, what is an anchor good for? What is it about an anchor that gives you security for your life? When you think about an anchor. Now, many of you have spent time on water and on boats, right? Anybody? Don't, be, don't worry about it. You, yes, you've been out on the lake. It's okay. All right? But what makes an anchor good are two things, really. One, you have to be connected to the anchor, or it does no good. I had someone come up after second service and say, hey, this one day we were out on our favorite fishing spot, and we dropped the anchor in, and we were fishing. Before we knew it, we looked up, and we, had, like, we were way far away because we didn't realize we dropped the anchor in, and it wasn't connected to the boat. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, an anchor has to be connected to the boat. Okay, so an anchor is made good, one, because it's, it's connected to the boat, but the second thing that makes it really something you can have security in is that an anchor goes somewhere where you can't go. It goes further than you can go and connects you to something you can't connect to without it. Look, an anchor does you no good when you just drop it in the water and drag it along behind you. An anchor does no good if it's just sitting in water. Why? Because you already have the water. That's the problem. The water is the problem. It's moving and swaying. It's in flux. It's, it's changing. There's waves. It's drifting. It's pulling. It has currents. The water is the issue. The anchor has to go beyond the water to provide you with a solution to your problem. The anchor has to really go further down. It has to hit the ground and preferably it has to anchor into some other rocks, these immovable, stable rocks. And any physicist will tell you when an anchor beds itself into the rocks, these unmovable rocks, the security, stability of the rocks is transferred to the anchor up the chain into the boat. It's what gives the boat the stability that it needs to keep going. And this text tells us that you need an anchor for your soul. You need an anchor for your soul because you need a spiritual anchor because of the water, the spiritual water that's around you is tossing you back and forth. You think of James chapter 1. It says, man, the person who's not anchored in Christ is like someone out in the waves just being tossed to and fro, out of control, has no control of anything, no stability whatsoever. We need an anchor for our soul because the water around us, the spiritual climate around us, think about the world that you live in. It's constantly changing. Everything in your life is always changing and moving. Circumstances change, situations change, money changes, your health changes, the people around you change. And here's the thing, you can't go back and relive it. Nobody gets to step back into another day and live it a second time. Life is not a Bill Murray movie, right? You, you don't get to do that over and over. You can't live the same day twice. You can't, you can't relive circumstances. Everything's changing, and all the changing around you affects your soul. So you need an anchor for the soul. Otherwise, all the change, all the movement will have a profound impact on you. Let me illustrate for you this way. When, on our honeymoon... My wife and I had this day on our honeymoon where it just poured and rained and stormed. It's like, and maybe you're like, yeah, we had that day on our honeymoon too. So we're like, oh, there's no leaving uh, the resort. We just kind of sit there. So let's just watch a show. Well, the only show that was coming in in English was Everybody Loves Raymond. Anybody ever seen that show? I'd never watched it until then. But we sat for like a whole day and we binge watched a show before binge watching was a thing. Okay, we watched... Uh, everybody loves Raymond over and over and over again and we were laughing and we really got into it so much we watched it when we got home uh, we've outgrown it but it was it was good it was really good what I didn't know is at the time uh, Ray Romano the guy who invented the show who thought the show up the show was about him um, was the highest paid actor per episode in television history at the time the show was being made a very very wealthy man and on the last day of taping on the last season the last episode in May of 2005 he got up in front of the studio audience and he began to thank them for the many years that he had had. 
And he talked about how he grew up as a struggling comedian and how he'd left home many years before to try to make it out in California. And there was so many hard years before he hit it big and really before this show changed everything for him. And then he said, I want to read you a note that's really the reason behind the show coming to an end. It's a note that his brother Richard put into his suitcase nine years earlier when he left New York City where he grew up, or New York where he grew up, and then moved to Hollywood. And the note simply said this, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And then with tears flowing, Ray Romano said, It's time for me to go work on my soul. Powerful. Because everything's changing. I mean, here's a guy that grew up with nothing but really had everything he needed and then ended up getting everything but really lost everything he needed and found himself at this crossroads with life flowing all around him and everything changing all around him where he needed an anchor and he didn't have an anchor and he needed an anchor for his soul. We're all built the same way. We're all, like, just think about how much everything changes around you. You can put year after year of hard work and dedication into a company, and then the day you retire, they replace you with an intern like you were never there. You're thinking, oh, are you kidding me? I gave you this much of my life, and now I'm not even missed. Or think about what happens at funerals when we attend funerals. It's a lot of grief at funerals, but the next day, the family has to move on without the person they had just said goodbye to. And life is different now. And it moves and it changes. And we all have to move on because you can't be connected. The anchor for your soul cannot be connected to something that's human. Because everything human is moving and changing and passing and coming and going. We have to tread lightly on the floor that we're walking on if that's where our anchor is because you never know when that floor is going to cave in all around you. You never know when you're going to lose that foundation completely. And here's the irony of the problem. Each and every one of us, whether you follow Jesus or you don't, every single one of us wants an anchor. We want somebody in our life who's unchanging, unmovable. They're going to stay committed to us forever. Someone who's always there, and they're never going to let us down. We all desire that deep inside of us. Every one of us wants that. And one of the reasons we get married is for this very reason. We want somebody to love us so much that when we die, they're going to cry and at the very least take the rest of the day off, right? (laughs) That's what we all desire. But, But here's the thing, here's the thing. The reason that they're overcome with grief and take the rest of that day off is because you're not there for them anymore. It's because you're not there anymore. It's because they placed everything into you and now you're gone and you can't be there for them anymore. You cannot be the anchor for another person's soul. You just can't. You can't carry that weight. So the question that we have to ask is, is there anything that doesn't change? Is there anything that I can connect myself to that can connect me to what I need that will not fail me, go away, or change when the waters all around me begin to flow and change everything else that's going on around me? Look, the reason that you want somebody like that is because you were created by somebody like that and want to return to somebody like that. We all do. It's built into us, deep into who we are. And Jesus is the only anchor. I mean, this text is telling us, as you walk through life, things will happen. Everything around you will begin to change and flow. And the only thing to hold on to you, the only thing that you can bank your entire life on is Jesus. He will hold you steady. When you lose a job, he's going to hold you. 
He can be an anchor for your soul through the loss of a career or a job or an income. When you lose your spouse to cancer and they're gone way before they should have been gone and the pain is creeping in all around you, Jesus will hold you through that. When you go bankrupt, he will steady you. When you mess up, get hurt, fail, or walk through a valley of pain that feels like the water around you is going to crush your soul, he will steady you in the middle of that storm like nothing else possibly can. And you might be saying, well, Rob, I don't believe in God like that. I don't believe that, that, can, that Jesus is even capable of doing that. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to prove to you today in this message, we'll do this in other times, that God is real. I'm just trying to prove to you that you can't live without him. You can't. Because when you place the anchor for your soul in another human being, they will not be able to carry that weight. Because even the best of people in this world die. And they will not be here one day. And when that anchor is taken from you and the waves begin to crash around you, you will not know what to hold on to. And if you try to place the anchor for your soul in yourself and your accomplishments and your ability to work harder and do things and be more spiritual and just accomplish everything, you will fail. And when you fail, you'll realize that anchor didn't go deep enough. You were just dragging it in the water. Your heart will get harder. You'll begin to isolate yourself from other people and that's no way to live. This passage is a warning. It's a very clear warning. Just like last week's passage was a warning to mature, this one is a warning to check your heart and check what you're attaching your soul to. To check what it is that's going to anchor you when everything else around you begins to change. And so I want to give you a series of questions that you can ask. These questions were given to me in a way to evaluate how the culture has affected your life. You ask these questions and can tell you how much culture has really influenced you. So parents, you can use this to evaluate how much our culture has really had an influence on your children. But I want to flip these questions a little bit too. And I want to say these questions can also reveal where your heart is anchored, where your soul is anchored. And if you're serious and very honest in the next week, you can begin to answer the question by answering these questions. You can answer the bigger question. What is it or who is it that I'm anchored to? First one is this. What are my loves? Here's the thing about love. What you love, you become. What you deeply love and care for influences who you're becoming. It will shape you, and it will mold you, and it will influence you like nothing else can. You become what you love. And so it's good that you love your kids and love your spouse. It's good that I love my kids and love my spouse. I encourage that. But we need to check our souls and make sure that we love the right things in the right order. Because love has a profound impact on who we're becoming and where we're anchoring our soul. You need to love the right things in the right order. And the second question is very much like it. It's what are my longings? Like, what am I really longing for? What am I really dreaming about? What do I really hope happens in my life? Here's the thing. Love will shape you, but longings will aim you. They aim your life in the direction that you're headed. Is it fame? Is it money? Is it accomplishment? Is it security? Is it comfort? What is it I'm longing for and desiring? Because that's going to reveal where I'm anchoring my soul. Question three. What are my loyalties? What do I choose, because you have a choice, to be loyal to? Look, I'm going to be loyal to my kids every day of the week. I'm going to be loyal to my wife. If you, put, if you put my loyalty to the test with my family, I'm willing to die for them. No questions asked. I would take a bullet for anyone in my family immediately, not even going to think about it. But, but here's the thing. I might say that, but when you watch me live, what would you see that I'm loyal to? Do I come home early to spend time with my wife and kids? Do I actually take time to invest in each one of my children and try to find where their hearts are, are, are leaning them and to spend time with them and invest in them? 
You see, your actions are going to reveal your loyalties even more than your words. Question number four. What are my labors? What am I really working toward? What's the end goal, guys? When you evaluate your life, what's the end goal of all the work I'm doing, the day-to-day? What am I aiming toward? What, what is my, the purpose of me working? What's the end goal? Is it to make your family healthy? Then maybe you need to spend more time with them and less time at work. What is it that you're putting your effort and time into and working toward? The last question, what are my liturgies? Don't be scared of that word. Liturgies are just habits or rhythms in your life that have a forming effect on you. You all have them, every one of us. One person said repetition is the mother of wisdom. Every single one of us has liturgies in our life, habits and rhythms that are forming us and shaping us, things that we participate in over and over and over again, and they have this effect on us, and we have to have a counterculture liturgy to our families. Many of us, my wife's better at this than I am, need to monitor how much time our kids stare at a screen. And you need to have time carved out in your family schedule that becomes a habit, and it begins to form you. Like, we can actually look at each other. We can actually sit around a dinner table. We can actually have these rhythms in our life. What about you personally, spiritually? Do you really have a time carved out where you focus on God, distraction-free, where you allow his word to begin to read your mind and your spirit and your heart, and you begin to allow the liturgy of repeated time with God to form you? Because it's going to have an effect on you. You see, these questions can tell you where your heart is anchored. And I thought, man, can I end the sermon today? just like with this powerful illustration, then there's not one. There's a challenge, church. I can't answer these questions for you. But I do know this. If you're in Christ, God's made you a promise that you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul that's based upon the God who has never broke his promise and always has a purpose in everything that you're going through. So there's nothing the enemy can throw your way that will destroy you when you understand that. The question for you in the next week as you begin to wrestle through some of this and take it seriously is this. Who or what is your soul anchored to? Who or what is your soul anchored to?